0: Father in heaven, Lord, we are so thankful that you've brought us safely through another day, and Father, I thank you that we've been able to gather here again this evening to study your word, especially as we open the book of Revelation, may you send your Holy Spirit once again to teach us, to guide us, and lead us into all truth, is our prayer this evening, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we've been through the introduction, we've had a big overview on the Revelation, and we've looked at Revelation chapter 1. Now, just to recap real quickly, what is the most important chapter in the whole book of Revelation? Chapter 12. Chapter 12. And the most important verses? 10 through, 10 through 12. That's right. Good, good. Now, this evening we're going to be getting into the seven churches, and by God's grace, we're going to cover the whole of chapter 2, four churches altogether. So I'm going to need you to concentrate really intensely as we get into this, this evening. Now, we're going to be looking at the seven churches, as I said already, and we're going to have an overview of these seven churches before we go into them. Now, we saw this timeline last night, and the seven churches are in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, which are these two up here, the yellow bars, and they cover the period of eighty thirty-four 34 all the way to the second coming. And the exact same time period is covered by the seven seals, Revelation chapter 6. And so we can study in conjunction with the seven churches, the seven seals, and that is exactly what we're going to be doing. So after we go through the seven churches, we'll look at the seven seals and interlay it, overlay it with the seven churches and see how they line up. But interestingly enough, the seven churches and the seven seals are God's view on two different things that are happening in the world, okay? But let's look at the number seven here, because you see, the number seven has a lot of significance when we come to study the Bible. Numbers have a lot of significance. The number 12, number 10, number 8, number 7, number 6, number 3. Many others out there, but these are the ones that are mentioned in Revelation, but the number seven especially. Now, let's look at this. The first instance of seven used in the Bible, where is that? Genesis in relation to what? Creation. Creation. So, when we look at the number seven, we see something beginning and God also finishing something. Okay? So, this number seven, in relation to creation, God began and He finished the work of creating on the seventh day. Actually he finished on the sixth, but seven was like the icing on the cake. And I guess to a certain extent, the seventh church is the icing on the cake? Or is it? You're laughing for a reason. I guess you know better, right? But hey, what does seven churches mean then? God is going to finish, but he's going to begin, and he's going to finish his work in his church. And AD 34 was the time that it began. the actual church. Because before that, what was God's people? Where were they? Israel, which is a church or what? It was a nation. So AD 34 was the beginning of God's true church, all the way up to the close of the second coming. Okay, now moving on. Here are the seven churches. Does anybody, I mean if I were to put it back, does anybody actually know the seven churches in order? But you know the medals in order for Daniel 2, right? And the beasts of Daniel 7, Daniel 8, you know these. We should know the seven churches too, shouldn't we? But I find out that not many people know the order of the seven churches. Very interesting. So I want to challenge you to memorize these. Now here's, for me when I memorize, I like to look at patterns. Thyatira is in the middle. And between them is an S and a P and then an S and a P again. Do you see that? Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, so S-P, Thyatira, and then you start S again. Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. So it's a simple way of memorizing the seven churches. But I I would dare say that it's just as important to memorize these churches as it is the statue in Daniel 2, or the beasts in Daniel 7. Equally important. Actually, more so because we are in a church today. It relates to us. So here they are. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamus, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And I'm going to give you the outline, but the time period of these churches. And once again, I'm not going to prove to you right now how I know that these timelines are correct for the seven churches. But as we go through the seven churches, you will see and I'll make it apparent why I chose these dates. Okay, Ephesus begins in 34 AD, which is the ascension. Actually, rather, that's 31 AD, isn't it? 31 AD all the way till 100 AD. 100 AD is an approximate date. It's not something that's exact. I say 100 because that's around the time period that the last apostle died, which was John. Now, I will make it more apparent later when we study the book, The Church, Ephesus, why we chose that date. Next, Smyrna, from 100 A.D. to 323 A.D. That's the church, Smyrna. Next, Pergamus. Pergamus goes from 323 A.D. all the way to 538 A.D. Now, what's the significant date of 538? I'm having a bit of hard hearing this evening because I've been a bit under the weather. So you need to speak up when I ask you a question. What's the significance of 538 A.D.? So, so the to, um, bring in the- Can someone condense it? <laughs> it's the beginning the the, uh, mm-hmm. Beginning of the papal supremacy. Church Thyatira goes from 538 to 1798. What happened in 1798? Two words. Deadly wound. That's what happened in 1798. Now, how do I know this is all correct? I will prove that to you when we go through the seven churches, okay? Next, Sardis goes from 1798 to 1833 you'd want to memorize the last few dates from 538 onwards, because these dates are exact, almost. And Philadelphia goes from 1833 to 1844. Now, if you do not know what 1844 is, I strongly recommend you to go back to study Daniel. And I'm willing to do it tonight. It's that important to me. That if you don't know the significance of the date, 1844, you need to study Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14 okay and last but not least Laodicea 1844 all the way to a time period in the future which we don't know yet second coming so these are the time periods of the seven churches from the ascension of Jesus Christ all the way to second coming (coughs) is it okay for me to move on Okay, now here's the outline. Seven churches, two chapters, Revelation chapter 2 and 3. What's Revelation chapter 1 again? The theme of what? Introduction to Revelation, okay, but more than that. Introduction to the seven churches. Don't forget that. The last 10 verses, um, John spends time in introducing Jesus to the seven churches. Okay? But here, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, describe Ephesus. First seven verses. Chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, Smyrna. Verses 12 through 17, Pergamos. Verses 18 through 29, Thyatira. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, is Sardis. Chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, is Philadelphia. And verses 14, all the way through 22, is Laodicea. Now, you can go through your Bible and look these up as well, but I want to ask you a question. Out of these seven churches, where do we find the most verses? Laodicea? How many verses are in Laodicea that God spends time in describing this church? How many verses does he use? Nine? Nine verses for Laodicea. Is that the most number of verses? Spent on one church? What is it? Thyatira. Thyatira. How many verses? Twelve verses. The more verses God uses to spend on a particular church or a particular place, like if we find in Daniel chapter 2, description of the metals, three verses are spent on Babylon. It was quite important then. But then half a verse is spent on the chest, half a verse is spent on the thighs, a few more verses on the iron, a lot more on the iron and clay, and a few on the rock. Really, the emphasis of what God wants to look at, us to look at in Daniel 2 was what? The legs and the feet. So obviously, clearly, if we look at this, the seven churches... When God spends more time on a particular church, you know that that is more important. And so we see here that Thyatira is probably the most important church that we need to understand. And then next to that is Laodicea. So we're going to be spending more time in Thyatira and Laodicea as well, especially Laodicea because it applies to our time. So let's move on. Common phrases between all the churches In every single description of the churches, you're going to find words that are repeated every single time. The first phrase that we see all the time for every church is, I know thy works. Jesus Christ knows everything that is happening in His church. And yet as men, we still try to think that God doesn't know anything. He knows everything. Friends, you have to realize this, especially since we are in a part of a church God knows everything. He knows exactly what is going on. You don't need to tell Him. He knows. And so, that's the first thing that we need to make sure we understand. He knows our works. Secondly, He that overcometh. Despite what's going on in the church and all the apostasy or whatever foolishness that is going on in the churches, He also promised that we can overcome. I don't care where you're from, what sort of struggles you're going through. I mean, I do care in that sense. But I tell you, whatever you're going through, you can overcome it. Why? Because the Bible says so. Jesus has given us provision to overcome everything, everything, without a shadow of a doubt. I know that. And so that's the second thing that is repeated throughout every church. Him that overcomes, to him that overcomes, he that overcomes. So there will be overcomers in every generation of each church. Even in Laodicea, surprisingly. Surprisingly. Next, he that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Does everybody have ears here? Yes or no? <laughs> he that hath an ear, let him hear. What did, oh, why did Jesus have to ask that? I mean, apart from the deaf, of course, everyone, uh, every one of us here can hear. So what does he talk about when it comes to this point? He that hath an ear, let him hear. Let's turn to our first text this evening, Matthew chapter 13. Let's go there. It'll make it clearer why Jesus, at the end of each each church, he decides to say this. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Matthew chapter 13, let's go there. Why does he talk about this? Matthew 13, starting in verse 9. The Bible says, Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Echoing exactly what Jesus is saying to the seven churches. But what happens? Verse 10, And the disciples came and said unto him, Jesus, why speakest thou unto them in parables? So obviously when Jesus said, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear, some didn't hear. Hear what though? In context of this, hear the understanding of the parables. How do I know this? Let's continue on. Verse 11, He answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away, even that he hath. Verse 13, Verse 13, Therefore speak I to them in parables because they seeing see not and hearing they hear not, neither do they what? Understand. Last night I mentioned that there were up to 15 of us sitting here and I was not sure how many people would actually understand the book of Revelation as I shared it. Be it my fault and my part at not knowing how to teach it properly, God, forgive me. But if I have taught it properly and yet you still do not understand, you need to go back and search your heart. Because sometimes the truth is so plain, but yet still shrouded in a parable. Why? Because spiritual things are what? Spiritually discerned. You cannot come here into church to come to study the book of Revelation with a carnal mind because you will read it, you will hear it, but you will not understand it. And so that is why it's very important to, uh, to come in to study the book of Revelation that you need to get your heart right first with the Lord. And I'm not saying that you need to know all truth, but at least you need to know that you've confessed the sins that you've got in your heart. You've made your life right with the Lord, or else this book of Revelation is no better than anything else that you've heard out there. And you know what? Ellen White tells us that when we come to study the book of Revelation, we'll have a total change in our experience. And yes, sometimes it's for the worse, because we don't understand. But I pray that's not so with all those that are sitting here, and those even that are listening, that your experience will be for the better, not for the worse. So, this phrase, when it's come, when we come to this, he that hath an ear, let him hear, when it comes to the seven churches, you do still need spiritual discernment beyond just praying. Your life is your life. But these are the three things that I mentioned throughout each church. Now I want to hand a handout. Take one and pass it on. We're just going to briefly look at this. Um, here what I got is the seven churches in a table. So on the left-hand column, you see the seven churches Listed down, and atop the, uh, uh, across the top, I've split it into five categories, five topics that we see listed here in how God describes his church. So through every church, Jesus always introduces himself. It's always different. Secondly, he always has a commendation for each church, generally. Which I mean, a praise. Thirdly, he has a rebuke. Fourth, a counsel. And fifth, he has a promise to every church. Now, just looking at this generally, what do you notice about this? Not in detail, but look at it big picture wise. What do you notice about this? What do you notice about these churches? The usual, they have some of each. Okay, well, what about the sum of each? Okay. Okay, right. So which two churches are missing rebukes? Smyrna and Philadelphia. Smyrna and Philadelphia. You'll find that even within the churches, when we study this, okay, we'll, we'll come back to it as we build on this, but history, even within the churches, is going to repeat itself. Philadelphia's characteristics are almost exactly the same as Smyrna. Sardis is almost the same as Ephesus. Pergamos is almost the same as Laodicea. But the different thing about Laodicea, what do you notice about it? No commendation. (laughs) commendation. It's pretty sad, isn't it? That's the time we're living in. But hey, we can still overcome, amen? (laughs) Especially that promise is relevant to us, (laughs) I think. Um, I just gave you this table just to, to show you that, to make it clear. Okay? Two churches with no rebukes, and especially Odyssea has no commendation. Sad but true, but still possible through Christ. Alright. This is the introduction that I had for the seven churches, but one more thing that I'd like to list out. You see, the seven churches: Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamus, Thyatira. Philadelphia, Sardis, Laodicea. These seven churches were actual literal places in Asia Minor. They actually existed. There weren't names that were made up. But one thing that I would like to show you here is <coughs> what we call transferring of the covenants. What I mean by this is on one side we have literal local. On the other side we have worldwide End time. This is another key that you need to understand when coming to study prophecy. On one side, you have literal local. On the other side, you have worldwide end time. Now, what do I mean by this? Babylon. Was that an actual place that existed? Yes. But according to prophecy, who is Babylon now? Papal Rome. Correct. How about Israel? It's God's people. See, when it comes to studying prophecy, we have things that are literally, uh, literally in the past existed. But yet today, they don't exist. So what we do is we transfer it over from the literal local to what? Worldwide end time and how it applies to us. And that's one way that we also have to interpret prophecy beyond just repeating and enlarging, okay? And so when it comes to the churches, they, didn't, they don't literally exist today. Laodicea is not a place that you'd find here on this earth. But you've transferred it over, transferred it over to worldwide end time. And so that's how we find dual applications in some prophecies, okay? It literally existed back then when, for example when Nehemiah was building the wall, and he was calling the people to come out of Babylon, to come back to help rebuild this wall. That was a literal event that happened. But yet, at the end time, we're going to be like Nehemiah, is calling people out of Babylon to come out to help build the wall, to fill the gap. There's a breach in the wall. Do you see that? So there is, literal, local, on one side, actual events that actually happened. And on the other side, Dual application what's going to happen in the future. So that's how you apply the prophecies. All right, now let's get into Ephesus. The first church, Revelation chapter 2. The first thing that I want to re-emphasize is the timeline of Ephesus from Ascension to 100 AD. At the end of this, I will show you why I decided to choose and why many historians in the past have chosen 100 AD as the end date for Ephesus but that's only apparent after we studied these characteristics. So let's get into it. What does the word or name Ephesus mean? Does anybody know? The name Ephesus means desirable. So something in this church is desirable. That means after we studied Ephesus, some characteristics that we've looked at, it's something that you'd want to have in your life, okay? Because that meaning of that that church, and every church has its own meaning, and it's relevant to its time period, but also relevant to us too. So that word Ephesus means desirable. Jesus' introduction of himself. Now let's go to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. This is Jesus' introduction of himself. And he gives us two things. He that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, and he who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Now, the introduction that Jesus gives of himself is especially relevant to every time period in every church. So what he how he introduces himself is exactly what the church needs to hear at that time. Okay? And every description of him obviously is going to be different. So what does it mean? Holdeth the, the seven stars in his right hand. Let's go to Psalms forty-eight, verse ten. Last night we looked at Isaiah 41, 10 already. But let's go to S- uh, Psalms chapter 48 and verse 10. What does the right hand mean again? Psalms 48, verse 10, the Bible says, According to thy name, O God, so is thy praise unto the ends of the earth. Thy right hand is full of righteousness. So when Jesus is holding the seven stars in his right hand, that right hand means he's holding up the seven stars with Righteousness, okay? But what is righteous? Let's go to Psalms 119. We'll take it one step further, we'll go a bit deeper into this understanding of why Jesus uses this illustration of right hand. Psalms 119, verse 172. Let's read that all together, okay? Psalms 119, verse 172. One, two, three. My tongue shall speak of thy word, for all thy commandments are righteousness. So what is righteousness there? Commandments. Now what did the stars represent again? Do you remember? Angels. Where did we get that from? Revelation chapter 1 and verse 20. So there it tells us that the stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, what did the word angel mean again? Messenger. So God, Jesus Christ, is upholding his messengers with his righteousness, but more so his commandments. So these are godly leaders. Through every church here, we're told that God has faithful men through every generation, through every time period, from the beginning to the end, even in Laodicea, surprisingly, there are a faithful people that are keeping the commandments of God. This is what Ephesus needs to know. But What's the second thing they need to know? Who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Now, where did we get this picture from? Revelation chapter 1, you remember that, right? how it talks about how John heard the voice and then he looked behind him and he saw seven golden candlesticks and in the midst of the seven candlesticks one like unto the son of man but here's a question what is added in revelation 1:13 we see that description but what is added in revelation chapter 2 and verse 1 rather not 3 what is added there in verse 1 who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks What's added? Golden? It doesn't mention the word golden in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 13? I think it does. What? I think I heard it. Holdeth? Walketh. The word walketh. Now Jesus was just standing there before. He was in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. But now he's walking around him. Now, where do we see the first instance of Jesus walking? Do you know? Does anybody know? In the garden. Let's go to Genesis chapter 3. And before we read this verse, I mean, stay in this verse, okay? We're going to read this. But, look, you need to have some pretty good imagination. But just bear with me, okay? Candlesticks. Jesus is in the midst of it, okay? What does this look like? A tree. The candlestick, if you haven't noticed, actually looks like a tree. Now keep this in mind because this is the promise that is going to be relevant to us at the end of Ephesus, okay? But let's look at Ephesus, uh, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8. Genesis 3 verse 8. The Bible says, and they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, when was this? What what event had already transpired? The fall. They've already eaten the fruit, the sin. Okay? But what is the reason why Adam and Eve were actually hiding? It wasn't because of sin. What was it because of? They were ashamed. They were naked. They were guilty. So the thing that really caused them to hide and caused Jesus to walk through to seek them was because of guilt. So somehow, in this church, there is some guilt going on. And Jesus tells us, look, I'm walking, walking amongst you. I know exactly what is going on, and I'm searching you out. But yet, we, like Adam and Eve, many times forget that God knows everything, and we just try to hide. For something in Ephesus is happening, that God is seeking them out. now let's go to verse 2. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 2. The Bible says, I know thy works. See that phrase there? And thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars. My, these are people of zealous. Jesus commends them, verse 3 even, and has borne and has patience and for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted. These people, they're zealous people for the Lord. They, they, they have these works, and they found out who those false people are, those false apostles, and they hate them. They don't like them. But I'm especially interested in verse 2 where it says works and labor and patience. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 3. Now, I want all of you to read this together with me in 1 Thessalonians. And I'm going to ask you a question, so pay close attention, okay? Let's all go there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 3. The Bible says: 1, 2, 3. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Did you see the words, works, labor, and patience? What's missing? Faith? Faith, Faith, love, hope. Exactly. Where have you heard that before? 1 Corinthians 13 let's go there 1 Corinthians 13 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 13 Ephesus has works labor and patience but they're missing three things faith hope and love now let's read this verse 13 together 1 2 3 and now abideth faith hope charity these three but the greatest of these is what? Charity, love. So above faith, hope, and love, the greatest of them is love. So what's the problem with Ephesus? Have no love. So, is this just an assumption? No. Let's go to Revelation 2. Go right back there. And let's read verse 4. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. You see, although Ephesus has a problem, Jesus uses the sandwich principle. He starts off with good, he gives them the rebuke, and he ends it with good, too. But he addressed their problem right from the beginning. The problem with Ephesus, they lost their first love. Why? Now, this is the reason how we get our our date, 100 A.D., you see, the problem here was, this was the beginning of the apostolic church. This was the beginning of the growth of God's church, where thousands were added in a day. And people were being converted and added to the church daily. The numbers increased. And the apostles had to knock out and, and establish their doctrines and beliefs on the Bible. And so there was a lot of heresy going around, a lot of heretics. And so there was a lot of fighting And even in verse 2, we see these people, they say what? Um, And I know how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they're apostles, and are are not, and hast found them liars. So these people are good works. The problem? They got so caught up with fighting error, they forgot about love. But you see, the word Ephesus means desirable. And so it is important that we fight error. More so than back then, because they got more winds of doctrine today than they had back then. And how much more do we need to be like John to understand the truth, the distinction between truth and error? But, you know, we can't even spend an hour in our Bibles nowadays. It's too much. The pioneers spent ten hours a day on their Bibles. Sometimes whole nights they prayed over it. But it's not enough to just fight error. You've got to love the Lord. You need to love the Lord. So that was Ephesus' problem. It's fighting, 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 forgot all about love to God. But let's go on. Why don't they have love? Fighting against the Nicolaitans. Verse 6. But this thou hast, that thou hated, hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, what is the meaning of the word Nicolaitan? It simply means heretic or victorious over the people. So clearly, there were heretics out there that they had to deal with in establishing the, the church at the beginning. And so that's how they lost their first love. But if we read verse 5, it says, When they lost their first love, we read verse 5, it says, Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen and repent. And do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Now what happens, what's going to happen if they don't repent? What did verse 5 say? Remove Remove the candlestick. The candlestick will be removed. But what does candlestick represent in the Bible? Let's go to Matthew. The candlestick certainly represents church. But we know that in a greater application, the church will not be removed because Ephesus is there to stay. But more on a personal level, what does that candlestick represent? Let's go to Revelation, uh, Matthew 5, verse 14 and 15. Removal of the candlestick, but what about this? The Bible says, Matthew chapter 5, and verse 14, Ye are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. So if you remove the candlestick, what's going to happen? No light. What does light represent in the Bible? Thy word. Psalms 119, verse 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So if these people do not repent, if they do not come back to God in humility, with love back to Him, He's going to remove their candlestick, take out the light of the Word of God. And so their Bible is gone. They're cast into outer darkness. So that is what will happen to them if they don't repent. But... On Ephesus, what we can learn here is the foundation of God's church is based on two things. Two things that we've seen very clearly. The first thing, the law or the commandments. Secondly, love. How do I know this? Come with me to John. John chapter 14. John chapter 14 and verse 15. From the church Ephesus... Although we are not living in that time period, there are things that we can learn. You see, really, this message is to the conservatives. Now, I don't really like to use that word too much, but you see, let's not just conservatives. I'd say extreme conservatives, because on one hand, you have the law of God and commandments on this side, conservatives. On the other hand, you have what? Love, the liberals. But where do we need to be? In the center. And this was a problem with Ephesus. They lost their love, so they became extreme conservatives. Legalists, almost. And that's why I know that the church of God is based on these two things. John 14, 15 says what? If you love me, you'll do what? Keep my commandments. So the law without love is just as useless with love without the law. And that's where these two factions come from. And especially as conservatives, sometimes we get too scared to talk about the word love because we almost feel liberal just by mentioning it. But that's not the fact. We need it. In fact, before the law comes love. Law is built on the foundation of love. Very important. The problem with Ephesus, they lost it. Last thing God's promise to the church. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7. This is God's promise to the church. He says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, overcome what? Mm -mm. What do they have to overcome in the church Ephesus? Their lack of love. love. The problem with Ephesus is they didn't have love. So if you overcome your problem of lack of love, This is what I'm going to do. I'll give to him to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. This is exactly the promise they need to hear. Why? Because at the beginning, they lost their love because of guilt, because of fighting the error too much. They got so involved with that that they lost their love for God. A basic application could be this. What happened to Adam and Eve in the beginning? They lost their love for God. But more so, why did they give this promise? You see, it's in the midst of the what? Paradise. What's another word for paradise? Eden. If you look up the word Eden and get its meaning, it simply means paradise. That's it. Paradise means Eden. Eden. And so really, this promise that is given to the church Ephesus, God is forecasting all the way past, beyond the millennium. He says, look, if you overcome your lack of love, I've gone beyond all the churches, beyond all their time frame, and saying, look, you're going to be eating the tree of life in earth made new, beyond the millennium, where eating will be much better than it was when it first was created. If you can overcome your lack of love. How important is that? Love, it's the first issue that God had to deal with in his church. And dare I say, sometimes history is certainly repeating itself. We're told many times through inspiration that we should never speak the truth without love. Because it cuts, but people know that you don't care. And we have too many people out there that love to preach, but they don't like the people. They hate the sin just as much as the sinner. Or the sinner as much as the sin. But that's not the case we all sinners, but yes, still God loves us. And that's a lesson that we need to learn when we come to the church Ephesus. Now, uh, let's take a break now for 10 minutes, and then we're going to go into the next three churches, okay? Um, it'll be a bit longer, but we've only been going for 45 minutes at the moment. So we'll take a break now, but before we break, are there any questions in regard to this first church? No? It's been pretty clear? Mm -hmm. Definitely History is repeating itself, certainly And we're certainly no different from the past Well, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer And then we'll come back in ten minutes Let's kneel Father in heaven, Lord, we're so thankful for your word And Father, we thank you that you've shown us the problem in Ephesus Because many times it reflects a problem in our lives O Lord, if we have been zealous in your work, but we have not loved the people out there, if we have no love to you, please forgive us. And I pray that you help us to rise higher than our previous experience, that we can claim the promise that you've given to the church Ephesus, that we may have right to the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Bless us, I pray, O Lord. In Jesus' name we pray and ask. Amen.